Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Gardeners everywhere have a certain weed that drives them up the wall. Well, today we talk about one that can literally climb a wall. It's field bindweed. It's in the morning glory family, but don't be fooled by its pretty white flowers. Field bindweed needs to be controlled as soon as you see it. We have tips for tackling field bindweed. Power outages hit both the west and east coasts recently due to storms. Many of you may have invested in your first generator to help keep your harvested frozen food properly cold or to plug in your electric chainsaw to clean up a downed tree in your yard. We talk with a generator expert. He has advice for keeping that generator running when you need it. Podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's episode 150 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. A few weeks ago, we were talking about nutgrass. Myself, along with our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower. Uh, nutgrass, uh, neither of us like it. It's a bad weed. It is. I did post that, though, on the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and, and asked the general question, what is your least favorite weed? Oh, did a lot of people answer. A lot of people chimed in. A lot of interesting uh, ideas, and, and I will agree with all of you. Yes, I could see where that weed could be your biggest enemy. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest vote-getters was field bindweed. And field bindweed is uh, sort of the thug of the morning glory family. Right. It's ugly. It's uh, It blooms in the morning. Yes. <laughs> yes. Along with the morning glories, and it has a flower that looks a lot like a morning glory, only it's white. So it's trumpet-shaped, and it opens to a circle, and it's white. Yeah, and it's an interesting weed in that it can spread by seed, it can spread by stolons, it can spread by rhizomes. Mm -hmm. And the seed couldn't last a long time. Yes, yes. So stolons are surface stems that travel along the surface and root as they go, and stolons steal space. And rhizomes are stems that travel underground horizontally. They can grow a stem from one direction and a root from the other. And so they become, a. if you cut them into pieces, they can become a plant of their own. According to the University of California, bindweed has been found growing on upright plants such as shrubs or grapevines with its stems and leaves entwined throughout the plant and the flowers exposed to the light. Yeah, but it's usually we see it as sort of a crawler along the ground. If there isn't something for it to grow up on. Right. It can be it can make a mat on the ground mm-hmm. with the flowers right there. If it's in the sun, that's the one thing. It definitely needs sun. But I also have it in parts of my yard where it is growing up the plant that it is next to and then blooming above ground. Here's some interesting factoids about field bindweed. Roots are capable of budding, can be found to depths of 14 feet. Fragments of vertical roots and rhizomes as short as two inches can form new plants. 
lateral roots often turn downward, becoming a secondary vertical root and sends out both roots and shoots from the turning point. This means that a field bindweed plant can spread radially more than 10 feet in a growing section. And this extensive underground network allows for overwintering without foliage. It can persist for many years in the soil. The average plant produces about 550 seeds and uh, seed can last 60 years. <laughs> this is a plant that wants to survive. Yeah, this isn't something that you just uh, hack off on the top and walk away. Well, that's what I've been doing. Yeah, how's that working out for you? <laughs> it keeps coming back, but what's happening is the uh, desirable plants are filling in more and more and creating more and more shade. That doesn't mean, and I have, so I have not seen the field bindweed. That doesn't mean it's gone. It just means it's gone dormant. And it's not going to appear until I, or unless I remove those plants and it gets some more sun and then it will appear. It's a native of Europe and Asia, so it means it's widespread. Mm -hmm. It has been found worldwide, yeah. Yeah. And uh, control, as the University of California points out, control isn't easy. No. No. It's not. <laughs> yes. Oh, and oh, man, whatever you do, don't try to till it out. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Because you... of all those root pieces yeah. and stem pieces. That, that you're spreading. Yes, can separate into two-inch pieces and they will all grow on their own. Yeah. All right. So you, you kind of hinted at one possible control method. I won't say eradication method, but no. a control method, and that's shade. Shade, yes. Yes. So I guess if you did remove just the tops if you added like six inches of straw or some other mulch on top that might would depend on the age of the plant right a young plant if it's just germinated from seed you can remove this the the top of the plant by hand and get rid of it or you can shade it very heavily and get rid of it a mature plant however is going to have a lot of stored food underground in those rhizomes stems and roots and it's going to be able to push up through even a thick layer of mulch. The best time, if you're just going to be cutting off the tops, is during its first three to four weeks after it has germinated. Mm -hmm. Because after that, the buds have formed. Mm -hmm. The yeah. buds on those roots that are yeah. going to develop a, more of a plant, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's a case for being very observant in the garden. Because when it grows up something else, it, it's green. And the other thing it's growing is typically green. So you have to notice the difference in the shape of the leaves and the slight difference in the greens. So it's it's one of those things when you're walking your yard daily or several times a week that you look for. As I mentioned, the easiest way to find it is take a walk in the morning and you'll see the white flowers in bloom. And right. That's, the, that's the, the calling card, shall we say. Yeah. But the seedling does look much different, and we'll have pictures posted of this probably in the Garden Basics newsletter where you can uh, see the pictures of the bindweed, along with this interesting graph graphic of a root system of field bindweed that can reach depths of up to 20 feet. Unbelievable. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, so cultural control uh, shade we talked about. Uh, seedlings controlled with cultivation. If if it's growing in the shade of a plant and it's not climbing up the plant, that can help control its mm -hmm. spread. Mm -hmm. uh, landscape fabrics. Now, they talk about using landscape fabrics. I, I have a love-hate relationship with those. I have a hate-hate relationship. Yeah, I, with I don't those. blame you. But those polypropylene fabrics, which and 
By the way, if you do use those, make sure that you have applied it in the correct direction that allows air and water to flow through it. Mm-hmm. And it is not repelled. Yeah, it has an up and it has a down. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, uh, if a seed can last 60 years, yeah. then even if you thought that after three three years, I can remove that weed cloth now. Good luck with that. It'll be back. Yeah. Right. So one technique is to use herbicide. Now, I have to say in the IPM which is integrated pest management scheme of controlling the pest, there are several steps. And I remember them by remembering, have you ever been to Hawaii, Fred? Yes. Uh, and uh, have you ever been to a luau? No, I, I guess going to a buffet isn't a luau. No, oh, no, okay. no. Luau's cost money, though. Oh, right. Okay, right. So you yeah. got to go to the ATM to get some oh, money to okay. go to the ATM. And there's a special food they serve at luau. Poi? Poi, right. Okay. So my mnemonic or memory device for the steps uh, in integrated pest management is POI, P-O-I, uh-huh. ATM. Okay. POI, ATM. Right. You got to go to the ATM <laughs> to get the money to go to the luau to the, eat the, the POI. POI. Okay. Okay. It stands for prevent. Mm-hmm. So prevent getting the weed. Make sure that anything you bring into your yard, whether it's mulch, soil, another plant does not have... Seed, it can sometimes be in seed, does not have seed of this weed in it. Field bindweed, yes. Field bindweed. Observe, as we were talking about before, walk around the garden on a regular basis and observe closely to see if you've got it so that you know whether you have to uh, get rid of it. When you see it, and the seedling is the, the best thing to find in terms of getting rid of it, but you have to know what it looks like. So you have to identify that seedling. That's the eye. Right. Prevent, observe, identify. Then we skip to the ATM. AT is action threshold. At what point do you want to take action? With this weed? Sooner the better. Yeah, as soon as you see it. And then your management methods. Mm -hmm. And the management methods, you want to start with um, cultural, mechanical. So cultural is changing the environment. That would be adding the shade. Mechanical would be using tools to dig it up. I like using a hoe on things. It takes out a lot of aggression. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so breaking it off yeah. at, at the surface, even though that's not going to get rid of it, it's going to help prevent it from spreading, especially if you do it on a regular basis. And you do it when the plant is young. Yes, that's especially important. Yeah. So I'm not aware of any biological controls for this plant. Biological would be a fungus, bacteria, insect, something that would uh, take the weed down for us. Uh, and then you get to, uh, eventually you get to, to chemicals. And there are chemicals that you can use. The old favorite glyphosate, which please, if you use it, use it correctly. Wear gloves, eye protection, long sleeve shirt, long pants, socks, shoes. Don't get it on your skin. But you can paint it onto the leaves of the bindweed. It will take time to act. Uh, it takes some time to absor- be absorbed into the plant and then get down into the root system. And because there's so much food storage for this plant underground, the plant will not be killed by it. It will reappear. It may be distorted when it reappears because that's one of the effects of the glyphosate, which is a systemic herbicide, meaning it is absorbed into the system of the plant you painted on. And be very careful not to p- get any of it on your desirable plants. It is non-selective. All right. It will hurt them too. By the way, uh, glyphosate, one of the common brands of glyphosate is Roundup. 
But if you are shopping for glyphosate, uh, check the house brands. It can be a lot cheaper. Right. There are other brands. And and, and Roundup has become confusing because there are so many different types of Roundup. Yeah. And so, yeah, just make sure that glyphosate uh, is, is the main ingredient yes. that, that you're looking for here. Uh, University of California says a 2% solution of glyphosate to paint the leaves of bindweed and shrub areas. And one way to reduce the chance of glyphosate contacting desirable plants place the bindweed vines on newspaper before painting the leaves once the glyphosate solution has dried on the bindweed leaves the newspaper can be removed but then again you got a regrowth that's going to come from the bindweed yes and it's difficult if you're treating something that has wound around uh, your desirable plant it's difficult to get it onto newspaper so it's a tricky business yeah and that's the problem with using non-selective herbicides. Right. And the good news is that bindweed isn't that common in turf areas just because of the competition and the shade created by turf. Right. But uh, there are a lot of chemicals available for controlled dicamba, 2,4-D, and, and glyphosate. But read and follow all label directions. And like you said, don't uh, let it hit any desirable plants. Right. That's why I like a hoe. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I have not used, although I do have a couple of places where I have field bindweed in my yard, I have not used herbicide. I just go there regularly because mm-hmm. I know it's potentially growing there and break it off. I have not tried this, but digging it out might be, especially when if it's established, but it's still fairly young, digging it out might help. We've had its relative, the regular morning glory, grow up onto the roof of a house. It was a huge plant. It was a one-story garage that it grew up onto the peak of a roof is 15 feet yeah 12 15 feet yeah so it grew up the the side the fence and then it continued uh, up a, a another plant nearby and then it landed on the house and so we cut it down and it regrew and so we started digging it out and we found a huge storage organ underground Ooh, and dug that it? out <laughs> oh like like a turkey size wow it didn't get rid of it completely because we you leave some of those roots that it can grow from, but if you can get some of that storage organ out of ground, out of the ground, that can be helpful. So it's a difficult one to get rid of. Field bindweed, it just takes uh, getting out there a lot, looking right. for it. Right. Totally. That's the route I would take. Take yep. it. Go out regularly. If you see it, pull it. Keep it. Keep that up. Keep that up. Keep that up. I don't mean like monthly. I mean like daily, weekly. It's your new hobby. All right. Field bindweed, a very popular weed among you. Thank you for uh, submitting that one, Debbie Flower. Thanks for your help on this. You're welcome. Smart Pots. It's the original award-winning fabric planter. It's sold worldwide, and Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. Smart Pots, by the way, are BPA-free with no risk of chemicals leaching into your soil, your herbs, vegetables, and other edibles. That's why organic growers prefer Smart Pots, and they last for years. Some gardeners have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade. Smart Pots breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants. Because the fabric breathes, Smart Pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for really hot and really cold climates. And unlike a plastic pot, the fabric won't crack or break from frost or when dropped. For more information, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts when you buy Smart Pots at Amazon. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred. 
have a new experience on your hands running a generator during these power turnoffs, where when it gets windy, the power company is saying, let's shut off the power for a while. And a lot of people, as a result, have bought a generator. But there is some advice you should have that may not be in the literature in that generator that you should know about. We're talking with Chris Kaiser. He's the president and CEO of the OPEI. That's the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. And Chris, let's uh, talk about generators and let's talk about something that you're very familiar with when it comes to small equipment like this is use the right fuel. Absolutely. Key to any engine device, and in particular small small engine equipment, is the fuel. And so if you have the right fuel and you make sure you've got, you know, your filters are clean and your oil's clean, an engine is, is nearly indestructible, a small engine. So that's key. If you have fuel, the engine's going to run properly. And nowadays, fuel will stale. The government got involved. Congress now makes us put ethanol, it's an alcohol, into fuel. Fuel will stale. It'll destabilize. It will no longer stay fresh. You hear a lot about stale fuel. The key is to stabilize it or use it frequently. Don't let it sit longer than 30 days. And in particular, if you're in a hot, humid environment, ethanol and alcohol is hygroscopic. It'll absorb water. If it absorbs enough water, it will phase separate, which means it frankly won't fire in the machine. So it's critically important to have fresh fuel. And the generator, it's advanced planning. Make sure, you know, give the engine a trial run. Make sure you're going to run it before you need it. Make sure you have adequate fuel, fresh fuel, and you can stabilize your fuel. So if you go into a, a dealer or a big box store, you'll see fuel stabilized, and it's right there on the can to deal with the ethanol issue, which will help keep that fuel fresh. Yeah, one thing we didn't touch on, the fact that generators are four-stroke engines, uh, the fuel and the oil are added separately into their, just like your car, but that oil in a new generator needs to get changed something like every 50 or 60 hours. Otherwise, you're, you're risking uh, damaging that generator. So uh, have some spare oil on hand. It's not an expensive investment, but it's a time investment, something you simply have to watch and be familiar with. The absolute need and maintenance for the unit. The unit will last for a good long time if you treat it well. And so what you've just described, make sure you watch your oil. And again, your manufacturer, these units are different. They're small ones. They get to be very large ones. Uh, It will speak to how often uh, and what kind of oil to use. Um, But you brought up a critical point. Oil is key. Oil is the lubricant of the machine. And I would think, too, that uh, when you're done running the generator, if you can, uh, run it until it's out of fuel after turning off the electrical load in the house. And and, or uh, barring that, at least turn off the uh, fuel between the tank and the lines. That that certainly helps. Um, And certainly if you're going to put it up for season, that's the one thing about a, a portable generator or seasonal equipment, emergency equipment, rarely used stuff, is you don't want that fuel to sit. Buy it and burn it is sort of the, the new words of the day. But what you've just described is what you need to do. If you just think that machine's going to sit for a while, run the fuel out or drain it. And you mentioned ethanol. Let's talk a little bit about that since people are going to be seeing more and more of it in the future. And ethanol and small engines aren't really a very good combination, are they? That's true. And by law, I mean, small engines are regulated by EPA and the California Air Resources Board like other engine products, designed for a certification fuel, which has a set amount of ethanol. But what you can find today are fuels in the marketplace for which outdoor power equipment, and in particular non-road stuff, so snowmobiles, boats, generators, lawnmowers, chainsaws, 
all of that non-road stuff is typically not designed or built or warranted to run on anything containing more than 10% ethanol. But the government is allowing sales of E15 and higher fuel blends for a subset of the auto fleet, the flex fuel engine, but not for power equipment. It is specifically forbidden and because it, it can damage or destroy it. And so we don't want you to, to lose an engine or have it damaged. So be sure to look for the ethanol content on a fuel pump. We're so used to looking for octane, right? A manufactured prescribed octane. But nowadays you've got to also look at the ethanol content. Or you can buy, now it's oftentimes a little more expensive, but you can buy the canned fuel at point of sale, dealer or big box, and it'll be ethanol free. So you can buy it in uh, all different size cans, but oftentimes a, a dealer or retailer will sell uh, what they call a boutique or distributor fuel, uh, which is ethanol free. And you, so you don't have those issues. They don't have those staling issues. I certainly use it for all of my handheld stuff. Now, if you've got a portable generator, and you're maybe burning a lot more fuel. If you're going to use a can, five, 10 gallons, what you've described as key, stabilize that, and then you have much less worry. Just remember, this is an engine. You wouldn't run your car in your living room or your garage or your breezeway. You don't want to run this engine indoors or near an open window or door either. They produce carbon monoxide. So it's critically important if you're going to run this product. Oftentimes, folks don't have long enough extension cords. They'll buy the unit. They're prepared, and they may have some extension cords, but they may not be weather-related uh, rated for the outdoors. They may not be long enough. What happens is that machine may get too close to an open window or door. So safety is paramount. It means you have to read your owner's manual. You have the right fuel. You have to have the right cords to stay far enough away from the house. One of the my family's down in Hurricane Land down in Florida. And one of the things we've learned is that once people are out of power, these are critically important if you've got a medical situation or you're trying to preserve your food in your refrigerator and freezer. These things are very, very popular and sought after. And oftentimes in certain periods, they'll run out of inventory. And so people steal them. And so what happens is you may want to envision a scenario by which, you know, there could be theft involved. And so think about a, a way to secure your, your unit away from the house. And that's the problem. People bring them indoors or on the breezeway or into the garage to try to secure them. Don't do that. Figure out a different way. The last idea, we've also had people that they'll have the unit in a place they can only get to with power, say an electric door, electric garage door. Be sure that if the power fails, you can get to the unit. Well, you brought up a lot of great advice right there. Let's uh, uh, wrap up a little bit on fuel, though. And uh, one thing I, I learned while reading about generator care, it's always a good idea to not let the generator run out of gas while you are running it for electricity, that what you should do is turn off the electrical load, then shut down the generator before it runs out of fuel because of something called an economy voltage regulator, which will keep putting out power as the generator runs out of gas. But as the generator comes to a stop, the electrical load in your house can drain the residual magnetic field from the generator coils uh, the machine will start, but it won't generate power, which means you have to take it to a repair shop. There's something I never knew before. Well, it's critically important. Again, you know your machine, right? And you're reading your owner's manual. Obviously, it's, it pays to keep track of the fuel that you're burning and the fuel that's left in the machine. You mentioned that you don't want to be caught short with too short of, a, of an extension cord. What is the ideal extension cord? I would imagine something that's outdoor rated and perhaps 12 gauge. 
Yes. Um, heavy duty, outdoor, uh, you know, 15, 20 feet, something that will let you get it away from the house. Um, because oftentimes, you, you know, these are uh, used in inclement weather, something that's weather rate, rated and uh, heavy duty. Again, it depends on the load. It depends on what you're going to hook to it. Portable generators come in all different sizes. So part of it is you need to know what you intend to run on the machine. What's its capability and what's the load you'll generate from the house? Yeah, I think most generator instructions say don't run anything longer than 100 feet of 12-gauge cord from the generator to the appliance because uh, the voltage drop on longer runs could cause uh, the appliance motor or compressor to burn out. Exactly. And probably another good tip would be to get a big plastic bag and put the original instructions in that bag and attach it to the generator. Perfect. Absolutely. Now, one thing that people may try to do, and it's a really bad idea, is to backfeed power into your house with a dual male-ended extension cord, thinking you can run your whole house with that generator. But then all of a sudden, you're feeding electricity back up the line, and that can cause a lot of problems. Again, I'm not a, an electrician, but I've certainly been informed by them. This is something you don't want to do. You do not want to plug that generator plug into a house plug. It is ill-advised, and you could damage or destroy components, electric components in the house, things that use power in the house, as well as damage the generator. Don't do it. We've been talking with Chris Geyser of the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute with some good tips on maintaining and keeping that generator that you just purchased running safely. Chris, thanks for a few minutes of your time. My pleasure. Stay safe out there. Because there are so many demands on your time these days, well, I like to keep the Garden Basics podcast to under 30 minutes. But still, there's a lot more to tackle on all the garden subjects we bring up on the podcast. So for that and a lot more, we're starting up the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It'll be on Substack. It'll go into more details about what you just heard on the latest podcast. So yes, it will be a good supplement for the Garden Basics podcast, but there'll be a lot more garden-related material and, uh, you know, probably pictures of my dogs and cats as well. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It's on Substack. And best of all, it's free. There's a link in today's show notes, or just go to substack.com and do a search for The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. That's substack.com, The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. Don't forget, if you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's episode of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, subscribe to the free Garden Basics newsletter. It's on Substack. Details are in today's show notes. The Garden Basics podcast will be on its winter schedule from November through January. That means there will only be one episode per week during this three-month period. It'll come out on Fridays. But because there's so much to talk about, there's a good chance those weekly episodes are going to be longer than 30 minutes. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, and it's available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.